Welcome everybody, my name is Pav Bryan, I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes and you are listening to Bespoked, the cycling and triathlon training podcast. Now we have got a couple of very special guests with me today, I'm absolutely excited and a little bit curious as to where this is going to go. Uh, you'll know them from GCN, we have Chris and Hank, how are you guys doing? Good, thanks Pav, how are you doing? Doing very well, thank you mate, how about you Hank? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I've listened to it for a while now. So, uh, so yeah, it's quite exciting to be uh, actually talking on it. Good man. What was your favourite episode? Uh, I have to say the Dean Stott one. Um, very good uh, episode, yeah. It is. And, um, and then, of course, um, our very own Mark Beaumont. You know, Absolutely. Uh, I've, I've done some bribes with him now, so I got to know him pretty well. And uh, it was nice hearing it you know, from his side of things through the 80 days and stuff like that, through your your podcast yeah absolutely no he's, he's an absolute gentleman and an inspirational guy and i delighted to in fact have both of those dean and and mark on the podcast and uh it's great to have you guys on uh really excited so uh for the listeners um obviously you've, you've seen the title but we're talking about uh how to find your speciality in cycling today and uh chris and hank have got some uh very different uh stories and we're going to give you some tips about uh uh, uh how to how to be successful in racing and um, what discipline to pick depending on what type of racer you think you are. Um, so let's just uh, jump straight in, Chris. Uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I am very, I'd be very surprised if uh, if there's some people listening to this podcast that don't know who you are for the both of you. But how who are you, Chris? And how did you get into cycling? Hi, my name is Chris, and I got into cycling when I was nine years old. Um, we went to the bike shop to get a puncture repair patch. And there was an advert for a 100-kilometer like charity ride, like a, an Audax UK event. And my mum jokingly said to my dad, "Why don't you and Chris do that?" 23 years later, 24 years later, I'm still the youngest person to have ever done it. And um, I got into racing from that because I was useless at every other sport. But because cycling back in the 90s was quite a niche sport, there was no proof that I wasn't useless at cycling. So I just convinced myself I was really good at it. Started racing. And I was okay. I wasn't amazing, but slowly got better as I got older. Decided it's, you know, what I really want to do with my life. I want to race a bike. I want to travel and do the races and just enjoy that side of things. And I somehow managed to turn it into a career. It's not that straightforward. Loads of things went wrong, crashes, illnesses, stuff like that. But in the end, I got to have so much more from my cycling career than I could have ever expected at the start of it. You know, I met my wife, every single one of my friends is from the world of cycling and everything I do even today is because of cycling. If it wasn't for that, I never would have had the whole wealth of experience I've had for the last 23 years. That's awesome. That's a, it's a really incredible story actually. Like, and I, yeah, it is, it's funny, isn't it? How, when you, you get into a, into something that you're, you're passionate about and, and you have a, a real uh, a deep love for what you, your, your life does start to uh, revolve around that. So yeah, that's yeah, good. So, um, Hank, how about you? Same question. Uh, I came at it in a slightly different way. I kind of like, I'm from a really traditional family and it was all, it was, well, the army was kind of the uh, the way to go for me. I was kind of going to follow my ancestors. Uh, so I kind of went into, um, uh, to go and see one of the corporals and he basically said, you know, but I, I was actually going for a scholarship at the time for the Marines and uh, and the guy was basically like, you know, why should you get the scholarship and not the other thousands of applicants? And I just took that and I was like, I, 
I don't understand why I deserve it and the other guys don't. So, and that kind of stuck with me. So I was like, well, what can I do that no one else can't can do? And that, and then I decided to be the youngest climb Everest, and that was kind of my goal. And then I got into mountaineering, climbed Mont Blanc at 15, 16, and uh, and then was training on the bike. And then when my Everest expedition fell through, uh, I watched the Beijing Olympics, and my stepdad went, you know, you should have a go riding because you spent so many hours out riding and you must be all right at it so my stepdad rung british cycling and said uh, i've got this young guy he's uh, he's keen he's hungry uh, can you come down and interview him there's a place on the gb team and i was like <laughs> i'm not i'm not gonna get the gb team off a phone call anyway by stroke of luck um this gb coach came down to visit me at home and uh, we went through all you know all the program and what it would what it would mean and where what like where where I could go with it, and uh, he said, "Why don't you turn up at the Newport Velodrome and we'll you know you can have a tryout." And uh, so I went back to school, took the train up. I was at school in Dorset at the time, took the train up, and uh, and the coach never turned up. So I kind of sat in the middle of the track, going, "What on earth am I doing here?" And uh, two hours later, Courtney Rowe, who was running the um, running the velodrome at the time, Luke Rowe's dad, who rides for Ineos now, uh, came up to me and said, you should have a go on the track. Uh, so I went and got a rental bike, got on the track, and then I did some flying laps. And uh, I beat all the other talent team juniors who was, who was sat, you know, doing their tryouts before. Uh, and Courtney said, look, if GB aren't going to take you on through the talent team, then why don't I'll take you on and kind of um, uh, grow you as a rider. You'll have to give up this, 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 this. And I said, you know, I'm 100%. You know, I'll give it a go. And, um, and yeah, I did a year with him. And then I went to the Welsh Champs. Then he introduced me to Magnus Backstead. And that's kind of where where it, where it kind of went. I went. You know, a year later, I was continental. That's so, incredible. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is. It's totally different, isn't it? It is. You, yeah. you, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't uh, think of a, a different introduction to, to cycling like that. It's, uh, well done, well done to the pair of you. Actually, it's it's really, really, really good to good to hear that. One of the things that I, I wanted to touch on was like the, the support, or um, I, I mean, that you you mentioned it a lot, Hank. But Chris, what what was the support like from? I mean, did you get anything from British Cycling as as you were kind of um, coming up through as a youngster? Uh, so I started very much before British Cycling had loads of lottery funding. Um, whilst my career definitely ran concurrently with guys like Garrett Thomas and those guys that had lots of the funding, I took a very different route. Um, so a lot of the stories that I heard growing up were about racing abroad, racing as an amateur in Belgium, France, Holland, things like that. And that's that's what appealed to me. I love foreign languages for a start. I, I love being engrossed in a different culture and trying to find your own way, trying to find your feet in that respect. And I was kind of fascinated with the idea that that would happen. So for the very first time, it was actually a guy called Walter Rickson. He used to live in Somerset. He would take us to the track as part of what was British School Cycling Association in the late 90s. They then offered to take us, a whole group of young young riders, to the Netherlands to race in um, a race near Eindhoven, which is a week long, a youth tour over there, where you do racing in the afternoons and then fun and games in the morning. And then every other day, I think it swapped around. So you'd have fun and games in the afternoon. And like, it was the most amazing thing ever. So when I say fun and games, it is all sorts of different things like strategy games where you have to get keys out of a pool full of eels to bouncy castles to discos. And then the racing is quite good fun as well. And like mega aggressive. And back then, 
as a youth rider in Holland, you could only have a single speed with a freewheel. So you literally had one gear and it was whoever could pedal the fastest. So that was quite cool. That was, you know, the path that I decided I would take was to revisit the Netherlands as often as possible, which is how I met my wife. She's from Holland as well. Um, so yeah, there wasn't any real integration with British cycling at all. I, did, I was on the talent team, but it was very, it was in its infancy at the time. And I felt like the path that I was going to take was already laid out in front of me. So I didn't really have a lot to do with it. I ticked the boxes and attended the days per year that I had to attend. And um, that was it, really. Never really had a lot to do with British cycling. I think it'd be good to actually add in a little bit here. My, my experience is that it's very much the same as yours, Chris. Obviously, I'm not, not as talented as either of you at all. But uh, when I was riding as a, as a child, I, I, I enjoyed the bike and I... I could have done something with that but there wasn't like go ride there that wasn't a thing there wasn't any of this um any of the the system that they have set up now and uh, it just kind of became something that i didn't didn't pursue until uh until being a young adult and at that time a bit too late but uh, but what i mean you you must have seen it now and what what's that what does that look like just so that the, the listeners uh can understand what 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 british cycling are actually doing yeah so they make they've made it more accessible than it's ever been really haven't they in, in a much grander scale than could ever be done by the British School Cycling Association, which was run by volunteers. It's um, If somebody wants to turn up to a park or a track or to a, a circuit now, they don't. They probably don't have to travel even as much as an hour. Whereas if I wanted to get to a velodrome, living in Cornwall, the nearest one at the time was Manchester, because Newport hadn't been built. That was a five and a bit hour drive. That definitely isn't accessible. Whereas now, Lots more of these facilities have been set up. They've been opened across the country. And it's it's made it easier for someone to get into the sport of cycling than it ever has been before. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that there, my experience with, with British cycling as an adult was obviously as I as I decided that I wanted to turn my my coaching and people management experience into uh, the world of cycling. And I was one of, uh, I guess, the, the first few coaches to come through and do all of their uh, uh, the, the sort of uh, coaching qualifications. And uh, I, I think that that's been a complete game changer as well. If you look at um, look at the way we've treated everything from grassroots upwards in terms of the the facilities, like you say, Chris, to the to the coaching network and everything like that. And that's probably where where we have that. I, I don't want to say brief period of dominance, but you can see that we kind of went from having no real, I mean, one or two really big names in cycling over like the last 50 years up until the sort of modern era in the last decade or so where it's really blown up and we've got, like you say, the likes of Geraint and uh, uh, and people like that who have uh, really like shown what investment in, in cycling can be like. And uh, I think that the rest, there's quite a few countries out there now, especially if you look at maybe the USA and, and how they did recently, um, who, are, who have kind of cottoned on at that being a, a, a good way to go. Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly the way that British Cycling originally tested. They, they visited schools, they tested children for potential. And that was a way of getting kids onto bikes that never would have otherwise touched a bicycle. I know Danny Rowe, or formerly Danny King, that's how she got into cycling. They came to her school, they tested her, they highlighted that she had potential to be talented. And it went on to have a phenomenal career. Whereas yeah, absolutely. Like that, they, that was not a thing in, in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s. It's, it's a complete change. It's a whole new approach, but it's worked really, really well. All you have to do is capture someone's imagination allow them to believe that they can make the most of that opportunity and they they do excel 
Very well said. But anyway, we've got to get back on the subject. We were uh, British cycling, a lot of kudos uh, going their way. Um, but let's talk about your experiences as a pro. So, Hank, tell us what it was like for you uh, after you had made it and uh, you had signed on as a, a, a professional bike racer. Uh, for me, <clears throat> I was um, really lucky because I was taken on by Magnus um, uh, Backstead, who back in the day won Paris-Roubaix and was a bit of a hero um, of mine, a bit of a legend in the cycling world. And he kind of very much took me on my, my wing. And I joined UK Youth, which was owned by um, the former former One World Champion, Nigel Mansell. And uh, I then very much quickly began understanding how it was to be a pro you know from the the setup to uh living the living how to live like a pro how to recover like a pro, all these things to to tick all those aspects and because I, I very much fast tracked you know i didn't come into the sport like opie did from nine years old i very much came from an adventure background from a traditional army background to then coming into a sport that is quite scientific and looking at so many different aspects to be the best athlete you can be uh, I found myself becoming very much a domestique rider just because I think I potentially had the ability to become uh, a kind of punchy classics kind of winner type of rider but I enjoyed the domestique role I'm very much a team player I I don't like having an awful lot of pressure on myself and I don't like having the pressure of the whole team on myself I much prefer putting myself on the sword and dying for someone else in in a way. And it seems really strange in the sport of cycling to be that way inclined. But I actually just massively, uh, I massively, I got a lot of energy from from people uh, and doing well for other people. And that's where I kind of began to come really strong. And I was the, always the rider that was very much um, relied upon through those hard days in the saddle and uh and yeah and that's the bit i really enjoyed and so when i was you know when we open and i got together in 2012 um for uk youth it was 2012 that we yeah. started and um and yeah that that's where i kind of started working for chris and uh, i enjoyed the kind of the team aspect uh it was kind of like my my mum always called it it was it's kind of like bike army because it's got all the aspects of the army without being shot at um so, so it kind of worked out for me uh but yeah i enjoyed it and, and uh, you know nigel then took me under his wing i went to live in jersey with greg mansell his son and uh and i was i was incredibly lucky to just go straight to continental level and race the highest level and then you know our team became the top team in the uk and um uh, and then worked with some of the top riders in the country and uh and yeah so i was very much lucky i have to say well, it sounds like you've worked very hard um, in your life. Uh, I'm actually sitting here and I'm kind of like thinking about everything and like that you've been talking about. And I'm feeling a little bit depressed about my childhood and my young years. You, I mean, what's that about? You've climbed Mount Mont Blanc and uh, Chris Chris is riding 100 kilometers at age nine. And what, would, what was I doing? I can't even remember. How sad. <laughs> in return for that, I had to herd a lot of cows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's something we have in common yeah. uh, we both lived on farms <laughs> oh you know what that's all three of us then because i i did that and um it was uh again that was a it wasn't when i was a, a very young child but as a as sort of a, a young teenager and i'll never forget the time that i i walked outside and i saw my dad helping birth a cow 
and that that's that's one thing that you don't ever need to remember is it <laughs> you don't unsee that you don't unsee that. no I mean, you can't unsee that <laughs> But anyway, come on, we're we're on a we're on a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, Chris, your experience as a pro, what was it like? Uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to sum up because at the time you're so engrossed in everything that's going on, and you're you you focus on the day to day. Oh, I felt rubbish today. My legs hurt, or this race didn't go as well as I wanted it to. But actually, when you step back from it, having not raced for eighteen months, and you look back and you're like, oh wow, it was actually really special. I, as we speak today, am the last person to have ever won a bike race in Libya, which is not something that many, well, in fact, no one else can say it apart from myself. Um, I've raced in Australia, Hong Kong, America now as well, all of Europe. Like the experiences that you pick up are just unbelievable. And the racing, you know, the racing makes up a huge part of it because that's, that's why I was doing it. But at the time you're so wrapped up in not quite achieving what you wanted to achieve that you don't appreciate just how fascinating and special it is what you're doing. And that's, that's how it, when I look back now, it's just a most incredible experience. I think I said one day last year to my, to my mom and to my wife, I said, you know, really lucky, you know, how the last few years have been. And they're like, Oh, finally you do admit it. And at the time, I'd never have said I was really, really lucky. I just thought it was a normal situation that everyone could experience that. But no, I, I do understand now that it isn't normal. It is very, very special. And it is something that should be held in really high regard. It's, it's really worth working for and fighting for. You don't win many bike races. And that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's all about the experience you share with your teammates. James was saying, or Hank was saying, just how it feels to work for someone else. I loved having pressure. And when I was good on a bike, I knew that I was really good and I could achieve results that most bike riders on earth would be proud of at some point. It wasn't always the case that we had the platform to perform. So a lot of, a lot of our best results would have happened in national level races or in lower level European races and not on, at world tour races. But that doesn't matter because you still have that feeling in your body and that belief that you can achieve something really special. The best highlights come from working for someone else. And it goes back to what James was saying, riding for someone else, you get their energy. If you win yourself, you're, you're happy because you've achieved something you want to achieve. You feel your emotions. But when you ride for somebody else and you help that person achieve their goals, it doubles because you feel their happiness, you feel your happiness, and then it quadruples and it, it just expands from there because you feel the whole team is proud of the person that's won, they're proud of you, they're proud of the team effort nothing is more special than helping someone else achieve their goals. That's, that's my mm. overlap overriding experience of having been a bike rider. That's awesome. No, I, I, I think that's incredible. I think there's a lot of people listening that hopefully would take away, um, take away from that. And I think that the, the one thing for me that you both, uh, uh, both are kind of, um, uh, passionate or sort of about is just how grateful you, you, you've been to have that, uh, the platform to to do what you've uh, to do what you've done, and um, and I think that we would love to sort of um, give some advice now on uh, uh, for people who are um, maybe maybe we could start with um, for for people who are yeah a little bit uh, lost in, in in racing trying to figure out their their place and uh, um, I, I mean how what would your advice be for somebody who um, who who's doing a lot of races and maybe aren't getting the results that that they want. I would say go and try something else. I don't mean another sport. I, I mean another discipline. So if one of your mates has got a cyclocross bike or a track bike, 
just go and try doing something a little bit different and not focusing on what it is you're trying to achieve at that moment. Removing yourself from a situation allows you to view it in a much more measured and clear manner. And that's something that's really helped me over the last 18 months is you, you start to process what you went through and you start to understand it better. But when you're wrapped up in that situation, the frustration is the overriding feeling that you have. And it's, it's hard to separate that out from the enjoyment. So yeah, I would, step back. Yeah, I would second that totally. I would like make sure you're enjoying it because so many people get so stressed and worried about performance and what's and results. And it's so easy to compare yourself with everyone around you. But get, get on that start line and enjoy it because when you start to enjoy things, you'll actually, more results will come your way uh, without you putting so much pressure on yourself to achieve what you think you can achieve. But ultimately, go into it with a super open mind and um, and go in and just go, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying what I do here. I love riding my bike and I'm going to do the best I can do. And that's all that counts. And I think it's so, you know, I used to get to races and get so nervous, get so stressed. I actually got to a national pursuit and I was the fastest rider in the entire team. And I got there, I was so nervous. I did two laps and I was dropped. And I was in training, I was doing two lap turns, three lap turns. And as soon I just let the nerves get to me and let the stress get to me and I couldn't perform. So you have to just go, at the end of the day, this is a bike race and I'm doing it for an enjoyment. And if I, if it happens and I get a good result, then, you know, then so be it. And, you know, you should definitely, um, uh, you should definitely, uh, you know, enjoy that success. But don't put too much pressure on yourself. That's the uh, the key, I would I would say. Do you want to know what's funny? Go on. Everything that you've just said and I've just said is stuff that I would have read over the last 20 years and been like, ha, what are these guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, easy, it's easy to sit there and say it afterwards. Yeah. But actually at the time, I, I wish that you could fast forward throughout your career, take all the bits that you learn along the way and then use that, you know, before you've gained it, if that makes sense. Well, because of course you can. But I, it's time mm. experience it all counts for everything walking away from a situation completely analyzing it and then revisiting it after a period of time makes it so much easier to cope with and i think as well just get you know when you just keep keep at it like yeah. don't 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 be don't if it's not going your way one week or one race then don't go you know that's it i'm you know i, I'm, I can't do it just keep plugging away uh, I actually turned up with um, with Greg and Maggie and I went to a race and I did so rubbish at the race and that was my kind of way of getting into the team and I went back to Maggie and Greg and I went oh, I'm sorry guys I did so rubbish and they said don't worry for that you're in <laughs> because it was basically like I've owned up that yeah. I did badly and I've admitted it and I've owned it <laughs> and then I went on and and uh, did did a uh, another race that was um, Eddie Sowens and then came in at the top and led out James Stewart for the win and that's how I got the ride. Yeah. So keep at it is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Assist. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's really good. There's a couple of really good points there. I think that um, uh, we, 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 we would drive home here and that is uh, that be be consistent and persistent um, around uh, around your your training and, and racing and uh, one one bad result doesn't define you. But um, one of the things from a from a coaching perspective that you, you both identify there is is just to be focused on the process 
not the goal because as soon as you start to focus on like the outcome rather the outcome of this is like if if I do really well I'm gonna I'll win and maybe I'll like for for other people like uh, our younger listeners they might be they could they, this with this win could be a step towards their own pro contract but if you if you're always pressuring yourself that the majority of people what tends to happen is you do choke and uh, I, I think that that's something that uh, once you can navigate and uh, and and get around, um, it really is an absolute game changer. And I think that I, I think you're right. I think even from when I was um, racing in, in time trial in the UK, uh, I, my best races are the races where I've just come up, I've turned up with absolutely no expectation, and like really not cared about the outcome because you're just kind of like looking to either enjoy a race or get it get through it or whatever, and uh, and then you end up doing the race of your life, like one of the best races. Um, so I think that's a, that's a great uh, great tip there. So um, I guess one of the things that um, we hear a lot of, especially, is sort of categorizing yourself as like uh, either a roller, puncher, sprinter. Um, I mean, Hank, you've you've said a little bit about you, your sort of role within that, and Chris, we, we know about yours. But how if if you were to like look at somebody, can you can you just see them and be like, oh, this person's going to be really good at, at at this part of cycling? That's a really good question because I think for me, you, you, you can't really tell. I mean, you can tell the obvious ones. You know, Chris has got big legs and you, so you can kind of tell he's got fast twist muscles and he's going to be uh, a, a, a sprinter rather than a climber. But for me, I'm a fairly average build. Uh, you know, I could, I'm probably not as skinny as, you know, an out and out climber, but I'm not as big as an out and out sprinter. So where do I fit? And so I wouldn't say, you know, if I look at someone, I can tell exactly what kind of rider they are. Yes, you can gauge it from their physical shape, but, uh, ultimately it kind of, yeah, like for me, for me, it never really came naturally. I never really, you know, was like, oh, I'm really good at sprinting or I'm really good at climbing. I was kind of average joe at most things but then i kind of specified into you know the, the crits i was naturally good at because i'm my my natural body is able to uh, recover so i'm able to do, do do micro recoveries so that's my type of riding from a, a physical and biological standpoint but then i became a punchier rider i could in the the tough days that i kind of i that's what i enjoyed so so, so not to answer your question, I don't think you can, but you can get a vague idea if that helps. <laughs> so I was going to answer that with a flat out no, and then I was going to look for an example, but I can't think of an example. So the answer must be actually what James just said. And yeah, you can get an idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I think that's good. And I think that probably there's, um, I mean, whose job is it to categorize that? I mean, did you... Did you all go into your teams and like? I mean, again, there's a good point. It's like Chris, your your body is is set up for sprinting, so you probably were always going to be designed that in in terms of genetically. Um, but for, for for someone like you, Hank, is it um, who decided that you were going to be like the, the super domestic? Were you was that you, or did the team do that? Or uh, to, to be honest, um, I kind of just fell into that role just because. I was kind of the last man standing out through all the stages for, for, you know, I was kind of the last man standing for, uh, the GC rider and I was the, you know, the second last lead out man. So I kind of just fell through racing, just fell into that position. And I think that's naturally what happens. You naturally 
you naturally, when you start racing, you realize, oh, I'm actually really good on the climbs or I'm actually really good in the sprints. And then you start to go, okay, I'm going to put more focus into that area so I can build my sprint or I can build my climbing or I can build my 20 minute power. And, and you can cut. So, so as you race, you kind of gauge where you kind of sit and then you, then you put more, um, more training into the certain aspects that you want to be really good at. Cause ultimately if you want to be a very successful cyclist, then the best way to do that is to be an out and out climber an out and out uh, sprinter because that's where the results come from it's much more difficult to be to become a pro as a domestique because you're not in the top five of, on the results page so when someone you know a team manager looks for a rider they're very much going to go through the results page of a mountain stage or they're very much going to go through the results stage on a flat stage depending on what rider they need and if you're going for if you're building a team and you've got a GC rider, but then you need someone to help in the mountains, then you're going to already go for an out and out winner who's shown they're going to win in the high mountains. And so for me, it's very difficult to, to get as a domestique and someone who can do a bit of everything. It's very much difficult to rise through the ladder. And for Chris, it's slightly easy. I'm not going to say easier, but it is kind of like easier to stand out in the results pages. Uh, so, so yeah, so basically I just kind of like fell into that role and uh, and I enjoyed that role and that's what I wanted to be good at. I wanted to be good at being a team leader. I wanted to be good at looking after this, the team and I wanted to be good at being a super domestique. That's excellent. I think that, that's a perfect response as well. I think that there's uh, quite a lot of emphasis, especially with like uh, youngsters who are trying to already label themselves as a type of cyclist, and and actually rather uh, rather than sort of doing that, it's to just focus on those strengths and and strengthen those strengths. And uh, yeah, mm. and I I think that yeah, you're right. Is that there are some obvious advantages if you're like uh, a fifty kilogram and you can smash your way up a hour climb. I think that yeah, you're. You're, you're suited for that, as is sort of the the, the, the the rider who's suited for sprinting. Yeah, exactly. And also, as a young rider, you don't stop developing properly until you're into your 20s. Of course, some people age sooner than others, but you will continue to develop and to change as you get older. I was a lot lighter until I was uh, 22. And then uh, my muscles you know, partly through training and everything, I started to change. I became a lot heavier. Like I was still under 70 kilos up until then. And then after, I can't remember what year it was, 2007, I was over 70 kilos, 74 kilos. And that's been kind of the weight that I've maintained ever since. That's really, it's, it's interesting as well. And it's a very good point is that actually, uh, yeah, you, you don't want to up until a certain age to really be thinking about focusing on that. And I think that that comes back to the, the, the point we raised earlier about actually just going out and enjoying a bike and doing as many different uh, uh, disciplines of cycling as possible. And just uh, just trying it out because you, you never know what uh, your genetics are going to throw at you um, and, uh, and anything could change. Um, it would suck certainly to sort of be focused on on uh, on an outcome of being a sprinter and then all of a sudden grow really tall and uh, and and bec- become like an effective hard gainer in terms of not being able to build that like fast twitch muscles. Yeah, no, exactly. So then, lads, um, let's uh, let's move this on and uh, talk a little bit about if you could give one piece of advice, like a top tip uh, for for anybody who is. Uh, not necessarily new to racing, but but not not a professional um, that you think that would totally change their outlook on cycling. What would that be? 
Oh, that's a <laughs> difficult question. <laughs> yeah. Do what makes you happy. That, I think, is probably the best advice anyone in life can give you for anything in life. And I think the older I get, the more I appreciate that. Like, it's okay to do something that doesn't completely satisfy you for a short period of time. But ultimately, it's you're just hiding from the real you and the real truth. If you're not enjoying cycling, you're never going to enjoy it. If you are trying to do it because you want to do it for you know the processes of achieving goals and things like that, and you get satisfaction from that, maybe that's enough. But cycling is such a beautiful sport, and it's so varied. and so There are so many different disciplines that you can do now and have fun with them and make a career out of different disciplines as well. If you're not enjoying what you're currently doing, try and find something that makes you really happy because that, that will make it sustainable and you'll be able to do it for a longer period of time and you'll enjoy it more. And I would say work hard and commit yourself. So in the sense that do your training to your best ability and leave everything out on the leave everything out on the road. So um, whether it be a race, whether it be in training, do every tick every box you can if you want to be successful in cycling. And uh, and yeah, just give everything your all. I think there's some, a couple of really, really good tips there. And uh, just to set up uh, a future podcast, we'll actually be having uh, uh, your man, Dan Lloyd, Lloydy on uh, in uh, very shortly to talk about um, uh, getting into racing and, and specifically from a, from a parent's point of view, as, uh, as I've said a few times um, um, on various podcasts, there's a definite um, sort of... Uh, uh, overbearing parent that you could see it sort of maybe the odd cycle across race or something like that that is probably pushing a little bit too hard and I think that Chris that your point is uh, is very valid here is that actually um, you've got to love it if you don't love it then um, you, you might want to consider a change and I think any of the parents listening to this definitely definitely subscribe because we'll be well, Dan and I will be talking at a later date about um, how not to be a pushy parent and uh, how to, to do the best for your child because the last thing you want is to to, to push them from a young age to the point that they resent cycling by the time that they're good enough or old enough to turn pro. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because I've seen that as growing up through through cycling. I have seen so many fall by the wayside that that had such uh, exciting futures ahead just because they they would. They would, there was too much pressure early on. So uh, I, I think I was lucky in the aspect that I came into the sport later in that regard. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't too pressured in, uh, at an early age. Yeah, and I was just fortunate that my parents were quite um, easygoing, I guess. That if, mm. if I wanted to do it, they'd let me do it. If I didn't want to do it, they would kind of suggest, well, you know, there's a small commitment here. Like you've got a bike and we've taken you to this race. Maybe you should consider it. But they weren't pushy, never. Just supportive. And that, that made it really nice and enjoyable. I never felt like I was doing it for anyone else but myself. Awesome. Okay, so guys, uh, what's coming up on uh, GCN soon? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's Christmas soon. Yeah, I'll kick you off. I've been uh, really lucky in the fact that I've been doing some epic um, rides. We Beaumont and I did the 1903 uh, which went down really well, which was riding, which was replicated in 1903 at Tour de France uh, on 100 year old bikes. And that was the, my first ever over 25 hour ride. And then we well, did, did, got into, uh, ra, uh, I did the Red Hook Crit and Rad Race. So I got into fixed gear racing. 
and now I'm going more into uh, adventure. I was lucky enough to do a bit of bike packing with uh, Jenny Graham, who broke the record for cycling around the world uh, unsported. And I am due to go, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say, but I'm due to go to South America to do some other epic rides in December. So I'm super excited for that. And uh, keep your eye on the channel because it's, uh, it's going to be emotional. Let's just say that. And for me, I've fallen massively in love with cross-country racing, having done the Leadville 100 back in August and realized just how, how good I could be on a cross-country mountain bike. I really want to target the cross-country national series next year. I'm not quite sure if that's going to be possible or not at the moment um, to actually make it happen, but that's one of the goals anyway, even if it is a bit of a, a dream. If it's not next year, it will be the year after. So my goals very much revolve around getting back to full fitness and enjoying a bit of competition. And we, I have to say, we've been, we, you know, starting out from GCN because uh, we we came as a, as a pair, <laughs> and because uh, we've raced together for so long, so to to come and present with each other and uh, and go and do some of these epic videos, and to be honest, we've had you know great feedback from all the viewers across GCN. Um, hey, and, do you not read the comments? I mean, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but it's just been, it's been, yeah, it's been so good to be able to like, you know be with your best mate and, and and create videos so um so yeah it would have been a tough transition otherwise wouldn't it it would have been tough but no it's been so good honestly yeah it's it's it, it's been great watching it um uh, that's the truth like you you've mentioned uh, some of uh, some amazing uh, uh episodes that we've watched and obviously from from my point of view it's been an absolute pleasure to to, to meet and hang around with you both because you are both uh, great guys and uh, will we be seeing you uh, in Mallorca in uh, in March I we will not, yeah. we will and i'm looking forward to uh to hang out with you more Pav. seeing uh yeah from Salback. i feel like i feel like we've got some unfinished business absolutely yeah yeah so yeah definitely if it's uh mallorca and they've sold that out haven't they gcn events uh have, have sold the mallorca um mallorca event so unfortunately if you're listening to this and you'd like to come and hang around with uh uh, Hank, Chris, and I—you'll uh, have to, to have to look at a later date in the year, but uh, uh, definitely keep your eye out uh, uh, for for more um, GCN events happening soon. But but lads, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and talking again and uh, talking about your careers. Well, we, I, yeah, I absolutely loved it, Pav. Thank you for having us and keep up the good work with all the podcasts because we do like this to it. And do have us back soon. Yeah, do have us back because <laughs> we love it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, guys. I would love to have you back on and uh, I'm sure we could put in a, a series of uh, different topics to, to help our listeners out. And uh, on that note, listeners, thank you very much for, for joining us. And uh, if you've liked this episode, uh, make sure you... Uh, give us a little thumbs up, share it with your friends and uh, uh, and uh, don't forget to subscribe because uh, as I said, I'm sure we'll have Hank and Chris back on. We've got Lloydie in the future uh, along with, uh, with many other inspirational and motivational um, guests. Thank you. I'm Pav Bryan. I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes and you have been listening to Bespoked.